My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Chen Hua Gu, an associate professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Gu. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Good. So could you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided that you wanted to become a scientist? I uh, grew up in China. Both of my parents are scientists. They're agricultural scientists, study population genetics. And um, so when I was little, I was more like a town boy type of girl. So always interested in more like animals and uh, climbing trees and this type of thing. So because of that, I actually went to college as a veterinary medicine. So in China, so when you're 18, in Europe, it's probably the same way. You can just directly go to medical school. So I thought, oh, you know, that's very fascinating, taking care of the animals and then to understand their biology. So that's the initial interest of why I wanted to go to uh, science-related stuff. How far did you get into the veterinary? Field? Yeah, so basically, I think even like a second or third year, we're studying the animal's anatomy. You know, it's not like you train by a human doctor, you just learn human's anatomy, right? This is you have to learn like uh, the mouse and the, uh, the dogs, cats, horses and everything. So, um, so I, after that, I feel like I'm more interested to understand why things are happening or how things are coming. I'm more interested in the mechanism in a way than, you know, just to kind of learn this and then apply certain application. So I decided I finished the training, the education, but without any uh, residency or anything. And I just came to the United States for directly to graduate school. So I think that's the transition. So I think my interest in science probably started very early, but I didn't realize the difference. So then never think back. So basically, I went to graduate school, I love it. And then, you know, mm -hmm. the so rest. Was that was that transition hard to decide to move uh, away from China? Had your parents done a similar thing? Or were they? Uh, no, my parents didn't. But for me, I, I think that time here is the, the best environment for science. And now so I'm looking forward for something different. Uh, so I think it uh, wasn't hard. I, I wasn't thinking too much about it. And then just um, came here and then adapted. And it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you did your postdoc with David Ginty and Alex Kolodkin at Johns Hopkins, where you studied right. common mechanisms that drive both nervous system and cardiovascular development. And in mm -hmm. 2003, you published a paper showing that a receptor called neuropillin-1 or NP1 binds to different ligands that drive the development of the heart, the vasculature, and the nervous system. And before, there was some work that was done on NP1 using mostly in vitro systems, but not much on what the role of NP1 binding to any particular ligand was in vivo, in large part because NP1 mutant mice die pretty early in development. So how'd you go about studying how different NP1 interactions affect different parts of development? Yeah, it's actually very interesting. Um, so, you know, Alice and David's lab, they both act on guidance labs and then they collaborated, they cloned the neuropillion. And then uh, when I went to the lab, I think just even a few months ago, Claxburn's group actually right now in Harvard at um, Children's Hospital, they find, um, so Alex and David found the semaphorin is the, the ligand binding and Claxburn found VEGF. And then that time is very fascinating because VEGF and semaphorin not only functionally very different, even structurally they're very different, right? So 
you know, why this receptor bind to structurally completely different things um, and, and functionally also different. So it would be interesting. And, and it seems like in vivo, the, the reason animal dies so early, it has both neural and vascular defect, right? So it sounds like uh, this is a, the, this binding is truly meaningful, right? Because you do have this both systems uh, kind of defect. So we wanted to know dissecting this out will be really interesting. So I think that's how I entered this direction. And then I wasn't expecting, you just make me start to think, oh, actually you look at it, um, human or animals, uh, the neurovascular interactions actually really tight, you know, in the periphery, they tend to travel together, right? Call neurovascular congruency and the, in the central uh, nervous system, you call neurovascular unit, it's more complicated, but still you, you, you look at MRI, you actually measuring the vascular dynamics. So there's really a lot of fascinating things, maybe because of neuropenia make me start to appreciate this. So I think that's how I get into. So you, you mentioned that there were these two sort of, in a way, contrasting, but ultimately complementary results. Was it obvious that they were both right to the Ginty and Kolodkin labs? Or did you both sort of think you were wrong at first? I think it's kind of a right. Like, okay. uh, so basically, turn out to be right in, in a way also make me feel like a I need to look for something more because it's almost like parallel pathway, right? So, you know, the VEGF binds to neuropenian play a role in the vascular system and then some foreign binds to neuropenian more like major in the nervous system, right? So even though you share this receptor, but functionally still seems like separate. And because of that, that that's why I, my next goal after this work, I feel like I'm more interested in something really bridging this two system like it's truly common things and play a role in in both systems from ligand point of view so for example we collaborate with another group we found that vegf can also play a role to guide the neuronal migration and then i wanted to know whether semaphorin have any function in the vascular system so i look at all the semaphorins and then we found some 3 e actually Plexin D, that's a novel ligand receptor interaction function, the traditional axon guidance molecules. And then when you knock it out, have a devastating vascular phenotype. So I think all of this, it's kind of in a way because that result make me wanted to look for more and then turn out to be with uh, many other labs during that time around 2005 or so. So become to this theme that common guidance skill, not only you know, anatomically, nervous system, vascular system, so similar molecular level, cellular level, you know, growth can have a similarity to the tip cell in the vascular, and also the same set of molecules that play a role in both shaping the vascular network and the neuronal circuitry, which, which is really interesting, especially from the vascular point of view. Everyone was focused on VIGF, right? So this is all of a sudden you have this new category of molecules to also play a role in it. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you a little more detail about the semaphore and 3E. So uh, one of the lichens of NPN are, as you mentioned, this uh, class of secreted molecules called semaphorins. And right. your work and others had shown that semaphorins bind to receptor complexes where NPN is the part of the complex that serves to bind the ligand, in this case, semaphorin. But another part of the receptor complex, a plexin, was th thought to serve as the signal for binding that ligand. So in a way, it's like the semaphorins are the key, the NPNs are like the keyhole, but the yes. plexins were the deadbolt that are actually doing something in the side, inside the cell. Is that, right. is that fair? So in yeah. the face of that, you published a paper that found that a particular class of semaphorin, semaphorin 3E, actually mm -hmm. seems to bind directly to a particular plexin and cause signaling even without the presence of an NPN protein. 
So apparently affecting the deadbolt without the key, so to speak. So how did you stumble across this novel interaction? I think it's actually, this is a reverse. Uh, so this is one time um, I visited Tom Jessel's lab because we usually have a once a year meeting. So I'm the only one actually study vascular guidance type of thing. And everyone else study axons or, you know, dendroid synapse. And then, um, and there's a postdoc Utah house in Tom Jessel's lab. And then, um, so he, he just mentioned to me, he had this uh, Plexin V mouse or something. And then I had some other primary data. I, I feel like it's a player role in the vascular field. So I, of course, I want to know whether I have a phenotype or not. So when I get the mouse, it has a vascular phenotype, right? So then I wanted to know what's the ligand. So initially I thought I always want to link that with the VEGF pathway because that time we're always thinking about the VEGF pathway is a major pathway control the vascular system. So I was thinking maybe plasma D can, can somehow, you know, through neuropelian because neuropelian actually binds to VEGF. So that sounds like a wonderful uh, story, right? But when I do the binding though, it doesn't work that way. So then I just decided to go through all the, all the summer forms. And then uh, Yutaka actually from the other direction. So he was studying the nervous system. So we actually almost both about the same time find the binding to some 3 e And then also there is interesting complementary expression in the intersomatic vessels. Okay, so but this all would seem at the surface completely still consistent with the idea that NPN was mediating the binding. No. So when we do the screening, when we when we test it out, so first of all, I, I look at the literature, I, I one day I remember I was like so happy because I know the vascular phenotype is in the intersomatic vessel. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the ligand, right? If you do right. VEGF, they express everywhere, right? So I was just searching like, like a very small paper purely about expression, but the SAMA3E is also old name called SAMA-H. It just have this exactly intersomatic uh, somatic uh, pattern. So two of them is almost like the key and the lock, you know, they're like completely complementary. So in a way, you know, it's a, a hint scare too. So, but until we really do the binding, uh, we realize in your opinion is not important. And in, in addition, we have all the other neuropenian mouse I've been studied, I never noticed the vascular phenotype in the intersomatic vessel. Mm -hmm. So could you describe that? What, what is the phenotype in the vascular system when you, when you disrupt this? Yeah, so it's disrupted. It's pretty cool. So basically, intersomatic vessel is uh, having the vessels branch into the each somite, right? And then to feed them. So during development, because the 3E is expressed in each of the somites, and it's almost like a corridor to restrict. It's a repulsive guidance cues. It's almost like a restrict the intersomite vessels. So, so if you do a whole month staining, you see the intersomite vessels has a beautiful segmented pattern. But when you lose this repulsive cue, you just see a carpet of vessels now. Nice. You just don't see any of this pattern anymore. So it's a very strong phenotype. So after you started your own lab, you published a paper showing that this same semaphore and 3E plexin D1 interaction is also required for a pathway-specific synapse formation in the striatum, where semaphore and 3E is expressed in thalamostriatal axons and a specific subset of medium spiny neurons, the so-called mm -hmm. direct pathway medium right. spiny neurons, express the plexin D1. And uh, these specific medium spiny neurons express a different kind of dopamine receptor than the indirect ones. Mm -hmm. And they have a very different connectivity pattern to the cortex right. and the thalamus. And you show that this semaphore and 3E plexin D1 plays a large part in setting up this connectivity. So my question is, how did you go about deciding to look, you know, for this, this interaction that you found in the vascular system, 
you know, which is in, in vascular development, which is very early on, and axon guidance is very early on. How did you end up looking at synapse formation? Seems very unrelated. Right. Yeah. So it's actually pretty interesting. You know, it's a, it's a lesson for me to learn, right? So basically, when we first find the summer 3E only binds to plexin D, you don't really need in your opinion. It's kind of a teach you a lesson, right? It's not like that the whole subfamily of uh, summer foreign, they should all behave the same, right? So it's not like, okay, I found everything about summer 3A in your opinion, then I understand the rest of the family, right? I mean, through evolution, you know, the reason we have only 20,000 genes, if they're really doing the same thing, why you need so many of them, right? right? So I think it's a lesson to learn. This is actually very relatively less known ligand receptor pair, less studied ligand receptor pair, even though, you know, it belongs to the um, class 3 semaphorans, but actually their true neuronal function, it's very little known. So I feel like, uh, and also basically using the vascular as a vehicle is the first time we identified this is a novel ligand receptor interaction, right? So if you think about your whole genome, how many ligand receptor interactions exist, right? Especially this KD is 0.1. Nanomotor is very, very respectable ligand receptor interaction, right? So, so you just you just assumed that it must play a role somewhere else in biology. Yeah, but of course I'm not interested in anywhere else, but I'm interested <laughs> in nervous system, right? right, right neurovascular. Sure. And also in a way I wanted to know their mechanism of action, right? Because we, we only know this intersomatic vessel sounds like a traditional repulsive cues. And then at the same time, we have a separate project in the retina. We already found a brand new concept, you know, is actually linked to the VEGF. The VEGF can control the plexin D expression and in turn. So, so it's already, even in the vascular, already completely different mechanism of action, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I'm really just curious about the function in nervous system. And then immediately what we found is just do a simple survey for the expression. We found dramatic difference compared to neuropilians. Neuropilians, I feel like it's all in earlier stage, like uh, axon pathfinding and in the major pathway like this. But for this though, it's already relatively later. It's like E18.5, early postnatal. So that tells you it's already past the general pathfinding type of thing. So I think it's, it's already giving a hint probably to some synapse or something related. So that's all obviously also less, much less known. Um, so then we were just struck by this complementary expression in the striatum and then in the cortex. And another reason it's very fascinating for me to pursuing this is because this is a very important area of the brain, but actually the direct and indirect pathway MSN, as you mentioned, they're completely intermingled, right? So in the brain, there's many places people intensively study is in the cortex, in retina, in the hippocampus, they're laminate. So basically functional similar neurons, they arrange in a laminar fashion, the synapse and everything is supporting that kind of organization. But in many areas, other areas of brain, it's more like a striatum, right? So they're basically completely intermingled. And I'll give you one example. Initially, we have no idea plexin D is only expressed in the direct pathway because if you do it in C2, you just see the whole striatum lighting up because right. they're, they're next to each other. There's no zone, there's no pool, there's nothing, right? So, but but then what's really a surprising, we saw only expressing one pathway, but not the other. So I think because of uh, this, I decided to to use the system to kind of understand how does the same ligand receptor play a role in the system. And, then, and the result is actually really exciting because Tom Jessel's group published before in the spinal cord, the ligand receptors completely reversed from what we found. So basically what they found is the ligand is expressed in the 
postsynaptic side, right? So because in the pool type of organization, and then to prevent the synapse formation, the receptor expressed in incoming axons. So what we found is because if using this rule, it wouldn't work in the intermingled type of situation, right? Because you need a much higher subcellular resolution to, to know, you know, along the same dendrite where you should form synapse, where you, you shouldn't. So what we found is the two others reversed. So that's what I'm saying. In limited amount of genome, you can switch the location of them. You can switch the order of them. You know, it's just a reuse the same molecule, but you can use that to sculpture all kinds of uh, circuitry. So what about the sign of the signal? Does the semaphore in 3A plexa D1 cause the, the axons and dendrites to be more likely to synapse or less likely? Less. So less likely. Right. So, so in this so way, the repulsion... More, yeah, exactly. So still the repulsive type of uh, idea... Uh, but used on uh, axons versus dendrite, yes. So are there underlying reasons maybe related to the downstream signaling of plexin D1 that cause it always to be a kind of repulsive uh, event? Yeah, I, I think so, because even in the vascular also the same way, right? So we just had a paper accepted. So we're curious about this uh, downstream signaling. Also we're curious about, you know, in neuron, in endothelial cells, are they same or different, right? So we did several years ago, we designed this image-based RNA screen. So basically we took advantage of uh, natural human endothelial cells naturally express plexin D1. Mm -hmm. So when you treat with 3E, the cell just collapses in the 20 minutes, right? So it's a very easy, robust assay. So the idea is that we, if you screen the whole human genome with RI, whatever block this collapse will be potential candidate. Then, of course, you have to do rescue, you have to do tertiary screening, you know, all kind, but at least it's a good start. Because this is a, the assay and everything's robust, and you can do uh, automatic imaging analysis. We um, wrote a program to everything calculating collapse. We finished catalyzing one, and we have another one working out. So it's actually more small GTPase regulators. So I think because they're linked to small GTPase and cytoskeleton, so I think the reason you know, go back to your question, why it's always repulsive, right? Yeah. Inhibit thing. I think it's because of boil downs because of this connection, I think. Gotcha. It's very fascinating right now, you know, seems like uh, what we found is the, the general theory is conserved, the general pathway, but the molecule is different in different cell types. Oh, I see. So the downstream player is, is very... Yeah, the, the downstream precise player is different from neuron and endothelial cells, but the general logic is the same, basically upon the ligand binding, and then you go through this uh, small GTPase regulator. So I have to admit that the paper about the striatal effects of the semaphore in 3E and Plexi D1 is pretty impressive in the, in the array of techniques that you use to address this question. And I got a little bit confused <laughs> in the midst of trying to read it very relatively quickly before the interview. So when you disrupt this interaction, you see an increase in the amount of minis coming from thalamostriatal axons in these direct pathway medium spy neurons. Is that right? Yes. So this is a very close collaboration with my neighbor, Bernardo Sabatini's lab. So that's another thing we both really enjoy tremendously about. That's that's how you can get a totally, my two labs are completely no overlap at all, right? Basically, for technology point of view. And then this is so cool because we can finish this just very rapidly because it's, it's like you're, you go to a candy land and whatever you want, you dream about, you can do, your neighbor can do it, right? So it's, it's very, very nice, right? So, so basically, um, the, the basic conclusion is uh, when we knock out this gene, you see excess amount of 
synapse, both by electrophysiology. Also, we did this array tomography. So basically, when you knock out this gene, you see a huge amount, almost twice the amount of uh, the, the minis, right, EPSC. And then you, you also see almost more than twofold amount of uh, actual synapse by array tomography, the VGU T2 and then the GLUR1. So if you count the structural numbers, it's also more than twofold increases. So I think this molecule normally does is to suppress or restrict the synapse. But you didn't find a dramatic increase in the number of spines. Is that is that no, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so can you resolve that for me? Yeah, this is turned out to be already known. So basically, 95% uh, of the synapse be between cortical and the uh, striatal synapse are form on spines. So majority of them. So these are not the synapses that you're seeing an increase in the number. Exactly. And then, then the one in the thalamic striatal synapse, that's 50-50. So the fact that we didn't see so much difference in the spine also make us to think mainly is the thalamic striatal. So that's why we stimulated that way and turned out to be true also. So basically, in the end, you see selective increase only in the shaft type of synapse. So I guess that raises an, another question. Do you think that there are maybe molecules which are specifically regulating these shaft synapses, that maybe there's a different regulator for the same parent neurons, but for different subdendritic targeting? I don't know, actually. That's a really good question. I, I don't know. And also, seems like, uh, you know, even in shaft, it's not like a all or none, right? So mm -hmm. basically, it's not like you just outright reject all of them, right? So it's basically, it must be in shaft, you have a plan where you should normally have it. And then all of a sudden, you don't have, you lose this molecule, you, you have actual places yeah. to all of a sudden allow the synapse to form, right? So I think that's the current line of research we're doing right now, basically to know what drives this, who decide, you know, where the location, especially in shaft, right? You can see yeah, yeah. You know, what actually determine where's the location of the future synapse. So finally, could you just give us a brief preview of what you plan to talk to us about at Stanford? Actually, I'm going to talk about two very exciting new work recent work which we didn't talk at all oh you know, great this interview so you act, it's it's fantastic because you you give me a chance to talk about all the other work and then this is two not uh, unpublished story and one is a related to so this so what i what we talked about before is more like a anatomical aspect of neurovascular interaction right so when i start my lab i feel like a, we need to first understand that and then we can move on to understand functional aspect like a, for example um, neuroactivity, how neuroactivity changing vascular uh, structure, right? You know, plenty of work being done, neuroactivity changing you know, neuroplasticity, right? Does, does have an effect on the vascular plasticity, right? Or the MRI type of work, a lot of people study how neuroactivity uh, affect the vascular dynamics, you mean the flow change, right? But, but no one studies the structure change or not, right? So one story I'm going to talk about about that. And then the other one's uh, also a new line of work, uh, blood-brain barrier. So because blood-brain barrier is, a, is completely the interface between the nervous system and the vascular system, right? And the functions, uh, is, uh, I don't need to convince anyone, right? It's obviously if you want to deliver drugs or anything to the central nervous, this is the, basically the bottleneck, right? So try to understand what are the core molecules of the core important regulators are regulating this important uh, function. So we don't really know too much about it, right? So we actually have some really exciting 
new findings and um, both from principle, you know, kind of a, the way of thinking this is, is kind of a game shifting. Um, so this is the two stories I'm going to talk about. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So in closing, we like to ask a series of uh, rapid fire questions, which are Whoa. more short okay. answer. Okay. So, <laughs> so the first is if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, and I really mean you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? You should enjoy your time. There's no rush. And then really learn how to ask the right question and coming up with the right set of way to uh, answer your question. I feel like you need to learn your scientific taste, right? What type of questions make you excited about. You also have to learn the skills, right? You have to come up with clever experiment, which is just absolutely the right experiment, right? It's basically, yeah, the best, come up to the best experiment to approach that question. So I'm sure it probably wasn't your best experiment, but what was your first experiment that you can think of? My first experiment, maybe when I was in college in the veterinarian school, uh, try to purify some organic substance from the natural Chinese herb. Because I, you know, the Chinese always believe some herb have some magic things. So I say, oh, I learned organic chemistry. Maybe I can purify this you know i remember i have just like boiling things and do all kinds of things and then i didn't really purify any anything i think that's my first uh, experiment. well that's a good one that's a good one yeah. <laughs> so many labs have their own uh, weird charms or quirks in terms of their culture or or funny lab items does your lab have any of its own uh, unique characteristics you know we were, we're talking about how to celebrate paper right so some labs you know, buy a champagne and then in the end you have a lot of champagne bottles but that's maybe too too big to to save and then people will save the corks right you know like uh -huh. this so we talk about that but I, they, they all know i don't drink too much alcohol so but i love chocolate <laughs> so at one point we're saying we should start to collect like a different type of chocolate <laughs> yeah 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 nature chocolate science chocolate <laughs> yeah. Like that, yeah well thank you for speaking with us today professor Gu. thank you very much and thank you all for listening we hope you join us next week when our guest will be nelson spruston scientific program director and laboratory head at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Janelia Farm. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.